I'll read Nahum chapter 1, verses 7 through 15. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. This is God's Word. Please be seated. We're continuing a series in the book of Nahum, and uh, the hardest part of this morning will be for you to find Nahum in your Bibles. So if you find the place between the Old Testament and New Testament and go back into the Old Testament a couple of books, you'll find the book of Nahum. We're week two in the book of Nahum, and we'll be looking at the verses that Andy read for us, verses 7 through 15 of chapter 1. And I want to give you just a little bit of the background again. We did a lot of background work last week so that you understand what's going on historically uh, as best as I can describe. We are in the 7th century B.C., uh, toward the end of the 600 B.C., uh, which was a long time ago, um, 2,700 years ago to be exact, Assyria, a country that no longer exists the way it did then, is, is the ruler of the entire known world. They've taken over the entire entirety of the northern kingdoms. They've conquered Damascus. They've conquered Syria. They've conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. They've conquered most of the southern kingdom of Israel. They've gone all the way down into Egypt and have conquered Egypt as well. Uh, they were, in true form, a global superpower. Um, and they were nasty. Um, they, uh, war crimes were not anything that they even considered. Uh, torture um, of the worst possible kind. Wherever they went, slavery, uh, everything that went along with war times ten would be how the Assyrian people were categorized. And so what you had was Israel that had been divided into two different countries by civil war. The northern kingdom had actually been carried off into uh, slavery by the Assyrians. They had come into the southern kingdom on their way to Egypt, had conquered 50 cities around Jerusalem, and then miraculously had stopped at the city gate but they were still in power and in control. 
And during that period of time, there was a man whose name was Manasseh, who was the king of the southern kingdom of Israel, who was probably one of the worst kings in all of Israel's history. They had led, he had led the kingdom back into idolatry on every level. His father, Hezekiah, who was a godly man, he had reversed all of the reforms of his father and had even brought back into the kingdom the worship of a god named Moloch who they believed desired the sacrifice of children to him. So to say that uh, the southern kingdom was healthy uh, would be, (laughs) you'd be hard-pressed to say that they were. Spiritually, they were a disaster, and they were also living under kind of foreign rule, having to pay tribute. They had certain freedoms, but they really couldn't call their country their own. Assyria was the superpower. And, and, And so I want to paint you a picture a little bit of of what it might have looked like during this period of time. And if it happens to sound familiar uh, in other contexts, feel free to allow it to do so because I think that there are some parallels as well. So you're one who now lives in a country that is under foreign rule. And for the last several decades, your family, friends, and everybody that you know has lived under some level of fear. Uh, There's food enough, but not too much. And you're never sure that that food supply is going to continue. When you walk around the streets of your cities or your towns, most of which that have been destroyed by this invading power, you will see the remnants of their soldiers still marching around. So you know that while you have freedom, you know you sort of don't because the powers that be are making their presence known to you. Ironically, you live in a country whose banner, so to speak, has always been, and I'm not trying to make a point here, one nation under God. You're a country that has prided itself that you serve the one true God, the one true God of Israel who has revealed himself to you from generation to generation, but you have a culture that no longer represents that. You claim that's what you are, but how you live is different. Does that make sense? You don't worship that one true God anymore. As a matter of fact, you've walked in your stroll around town past three temples where sacrifices are being offered to foreign gods. And you still claim that you're one nation under God, but really and truly you're not because you've adopted the culture of the nation that has invaded you. And so as a people, as a group, and you an individual in that group, very few people talk about God at all. God is just not a topic of conversation that comes up, and very few 
dare to worship the God that you claim as a nation is your God. Most people worship the gods of the foreigners or no God at all. So that's the context. And, and into this context, a man comes whose name is Nahum. And Nahum means comfort. And he claims that he is a prophet who has a word from the Lord, the God that they claim to serve. And, and, and he begins to speak and he says things like this. And I'm quoting from the passage that Andy just read. He says, God will tell you this, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Now, how are you going to respond as an individual or as a group to that kind of message from a person who claims that he's from the Lord? Okay? That's a very interesting question. Because the vast majority of people in town don't even believe there's a God and certainly don't worship him. And if they do believe in God, the God that there's worshiping has nothing to do with the God that this man claims he is coming from. So, so I gave these responses last week, but I'll give them to you again. I think the, the variety of responses are going to be something like this. Well, I don't believe in the God that you're speaking about. And, and so nice words, potential words of comfort, but I don't think it's really going to happen. Some might say, um, well, that's wishful thinking, but the Assyrian Empire is huge, and I can see no conceivable way how any divine power could interfere and do away with my adversaries. And so, nice try, an effort at comforting words, but that's as far as that's going to go. Now, you are walking around the town, but you have a 19-year-old sister, and she's a bit of a zealot, you know. Her boyfriend was killed by the Assyrians when, when they came in, and so she responds to this message and says, Yes! There's nothing more that I want than vengeance against my enemies. Go get them, God. I'm, I'm not going to hold out a whole lot of hope, but, but go get them. I love the idea of you taking vengeance on my enemies. And then as you're walking around, you hear the words of your grandfather. And your grandfather said, when God speaks, he always keeps his promises. Now, your grandfather's in a very small minority, you know. There are very, very few people like him who talk that way anymore because he has put his trust and his faith in what he cannot see instead of what he sees. And everybody else in town is a realist, and they see the enemy who's conquered all these nations and holds us under their thumb. And this preacher shows up and said, God, like an overflowing flood, will destroy the adversaries and will pursue his enemies in darkness. That's what Nahum is faced with. You know, this conflicting ideas, you know, two different perspectives 
a, a very minor group of people who are going to put their trust in God's word in what they cannot see and the rest of the world with a wide variety of responses to what they see as reality. Okay, so now look at your text with that background in mind. And we've discussed the possibilities of how we're going to take this. And I'm going to read verses 7 through 12 to start with. He is speaking, I believe, to the southern kingdom of Israel, but he is speaking to them about how he is going to punish Assyria, the nation, and in particular the capital city of Nineveh, as representatives of the entire uh, empire, and how God is going to bring his vengeance on these people who have brought such catastrophe to his people. Beginning in verse 7, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a, a complete end of the adversaries, and will pursue his enemies into the darkness. This is the verse I read before. Now he's he's speaking in verse 9 to the Assyrians when he says, What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. Speaking back to the Israelites, for they are like Entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink, they are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. He's turned his attention back to the Assyrians. What he's saying here is, from you you have a king who who has plotted not only to conquer the world, but he's plotted against God and his people. And he is a worthless counselor. So in verse 12, thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength in many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. Speaking again to the people of Israel. Okay, so we have all those responses that we've talked about before. The 19-year-old girl is saying, yeehaw, God is going to get them. He's going to bring vengeance on my enemies. The vast majority of people say, God, I'd love to believe in you, but I don't think you're strong enough. Some people say, I don't even believe that there is a God. But but there are a few, a few, who say somehow, some way, God is going to remedy my dark days. Somehow, someway, God is going to produce what he says here. And he says, I have afflicted you, but I will afflict you no more. And those are words of comfort to a few. And so the question, of course, is what do we do with these words? And and it's a challenge. It's hard to know because the first thing that we think of is the us and the them. They're so far away. They're so far removed How can we possibly relate to what's going on in their world? And I'm just thankful that I'm not like them. 
I'm just thankful that my country is still free and it's one nation under God and, and, and everything's okay more or less on a political level and, and everything's fine. But So I, I can learn from their mistakes. But if God's word is inspired and, and it's profitable for me for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness, then what am I supposed to do with this? And I look at this and I go, there is comfort here. There is real genuine comfort here because if you're like me, there are dark days for you. Now, they may not be as dark as the people in the 7th century in Israel right now, but we do live in a world where our brothers and sisters in Christ are living in very similar dark days. And they could read these words and say somehow, some way, if I am one of those few who God has granted faith, I can put my trust in him that he will remove my dark days and that they will not come again. And there is comfort in this. And, and some who really want to take the whole text out of context will say, this is what God wants for you all the time. And all you have to do is have enough faith and put the faith in the right place and your life will be golden from this day forward forevermore because look at what Nahum says. I will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. And, and, and somebody could preach that and say, well, let me just tell you exactly how to get that in your life. Well, what I don't want to do is minimize the comfort that God can provide for us because each of us have job situations, family members, friends, acquaintances who are real pain and a challenge to our faith and a challenge to our existence and a challenge to us on a day-to-day -day basis. And quite frankly, we wish they would go away. And the question is, how do we live when they don't go away? It's a very fascinating question. But there is another challenge with this text. And I want to point this challenge out to you because, because I didn't know what to do with it for a very, very long time this week. You see, back in verse 9, God is speaking and he says to the Assyrians, what do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end and trouble will not rise up a second time. Does that not sound as if God is going to remove the problem of the Assyrians and problems are not coming back? And, and again, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. It sounds, in that is in verse 12, that, that God is going to do something that's going to remove an affliction and that affliction is not going to return. Now here's the challenge and here's the problem. In the book of Micah that we just discussed before coming to Nahum, Micah said Assyria is going to go away, but in Assyria's place, Babylon is going to come in. And not only is Babylon going to be an empire, like Assyria, they are going to conquer the southern kingdom of Israel and carry you off into captivity. 
This has already been prophesied. And we happen to know from human history, this is exactly what happened. Babylon conquered the entire Assyrian world, and they became the superpower. And they conquered the southern kingdom of Israel and carried them all off into exile. And so I look at this text and I say, now, wait a minute. We have a problem. We have a problem. Because Nahum, God's man, is prophesying that God is going to deal with affliction and that it's not going to come back. And that the problem is going to be resolved. But we know Assyria goes away, but Babylon takes its place. And quite frankly, for the southern kingdom of Israel, the problem gets bigger. So what do we do with this? This is a challenge for preachers, i got to tell you. This is really the real deal. And if you're in all those categories of responses to this, what are you going to do? How are you going to respond? How are you going to live? Because you've heard what Micah has said before. You know the Babylonians are going to be a problem, and yet God is kept you in this really dark day with Assyria being the problem. So what perspective are we looking at? Now look with me at verse 2, back of chapter 1, because I want us to look again at how God is described. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Again, that's, that's a verse where the 19-year-old girl is saying, yeah, go get him, God. I want nothing more than justice and vengeance. Bring it on. Uh, some people are saying it's an impossibility. It can't happen. Some people are saying, I wish it would happen, but I don't believe in a God. And God is jealous and avenging, and he's wrathful toward his enemies. Now, here's, here's the problem. When we read that, our assumption is that the enemies are the Assyrians, all right? Now, Assyria is a problem, and they're an evil people, and I could describe in gory details what they did and so on and so forth, and they do need judgment. But ironically, in the Bible, when it talks about enemies, it doesn't exclusively talk about enemies as being the people who are afflicting the people of God. You see, enemies to God are anyone who does not take God at his word. Enemies of God are anybody who say, I wish it were true, God, but I don't believe in you. I wish you were powerful enough, but you're not. All I want from you, God, is vengeance, but you cannot have my allegiance. Those people are categorized as enemies of God. So in verse 2, when it speaks of a jealous, avenging God, wrathful, who will bring about vengeance on his enemies, he is not merely speaking of the Assyrians, which is naturally what the people who first heard this thought 
But it was also the people among God's people who didn't put their trust and faith in him and didn't take him at his word. All of those were enemies of God. As a matter of fact, this is how the New Testament describes you and I before we had a relationship with God through Christ as enemies of God. And so when God is going to be wrathful and vengeant and and he's going to bring about justice, it's going to be against people who do not put their trust and faith in him. So what I'm trying to say is this, and this is a very key point to get, the thing to fear in Nahum is not the Assyrians. The thing to fear in Nahum is God himself. Justice, wrath, anger, vengeance against all people because of their rejection of him because they are enemies of God. I'm hoping that that is clear. Because throughout the rest of the study, and there's only going to be three more weeks, it'll be vitally important that we understand how God is speaking of vengeance and judgment. Now, if that's the case, comfort takes on a whole different level. Because what we've done is we've moved ourselves from the question, how is God going to deal with the Assyrians, to how is God going to deal with me? All right? Now, let me say this, and some of you are guests, and some of you are not. And some of you know that I love to go from the Old Testament to Jesus. All right? And... and, and you know that ultimately I'm going to get there. And you can already, if you are awake, have sniffs and breezes of how, or not how, but, but that the fact that that's coming. Because what Micah, I'm sorry, what Nahum has done is painted the picture of the reality that God is angry and the problem is sin and mankind universally has an issue that has to be dealt with, all right? Not just the Assyrian Empire. That me being taken out of dark days, if it's going to be forever and not repeated, has nothing to do with my earthly enemy being wiped out because another one's going to take its place. Does that make sense? You may have dark days today, and things may be great next week, and the week following after that are dark days again. It comes and it goes, and it's not accidental. God is in control of all of it. But here he is talking very specifically about the reality that there are adversaries that need to be dealt with, and when they are dealt with, they will not come back. And that once you were afflicted, but now you are afflicted no more. Those are real things Nahum is saying. So now look back with me at the text, and the prophecy continues. In verse 13, he's talking to the Judeans. In verse 14, he is talking to the Assyrians. And in verse 15, he is talking again to the Judeans. Verse 13, And now I will break his, that is Assyria's yoke, off of you, and will burst your bonds apart. In other words, you'll be free. 
Now, speaking to the Assyrians, the Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be persecuted or perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off all the carved image and the metal images, and I will make your grave, for you are vile. Now, see, the problem with most of us or many of us when we read these Old Testament passages is that we just see it in time and space and we think of it as people and individuals and Israel's biggest need was to get rid of the Assyrians and everything would be back to normal, right? And we translate that into, in our day and age, if just my dark days would go away and my hardships and the people that are giving me grief were to die... Life would be so much better. And we see everything on a horizontal plateau. But God, at the same time as he's speaking about Assyria, he is saying there is a greater need that needs to be dealt with. And that is what separates my enemies from me. Does that make sense? Assyria is a problem, and I will deal with Assyria, but there is a greater problem, and that is mankind, because of sin, is separated from me, and I hate that, and I am going to deal with that, and I am going to solve that problem. And it will be for once, and it will be for all, and the problem will not come back, as he has said in the text. Now look with me at verse 15, because what I want to do in this last few minutes, maybe about four, is to explain to you how and why we must get to Jesus from Nahum. That it's not smoke and mirrors, that Nahum's whole purpose is to give us a picture of the problem that we need to overcome, which is the anger of God because of our sin. Verse 15 says, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. There's that idea again of the problem being dealt with once and the worthless cut off forever. But blessed is he who comes and preaches on top of the mountains. Now, stick with me. We're nearly done, but this is how I want you to see it. Nahum here in verse 15 is quoting Isaiah chapter 42. Now, Isaiah 42 was written 50 years before. Micah was writing, I'm sorry, Isaiah was writing from Jerusalem in the southern kingdom while Assyria was attacking Jerusalem. And if you know anything about the book of Isaiah, he is speaking of the Messiah. He is talking about the coming of the Messiah. Chapters about 35 to 44, I'm sorry, 54, are all messianic in the book of Isaiah. So look with me, if you can, real quick. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. 
How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And then he continues with his messianic talk. Verse 11, depart, depart, go out from here, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of here, purify yourself, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Verse 13, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. King shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has been told them they see and that which they have not heard they now understand. In other words... Nahum is quoting Isaiah about the good news that is coming. He goes back 50 years, quotes Isaiah, and says, Isaiah was talking about the Messiah who is coming, who is going to take care of the problem of sin, which makes mankind the enemy of God. He's going to take care of the Assyrians but the Babylonians are going to take their place. But that which separates you from God is going to be taken care of in Messiah, who is coming. So his hope and his confidence and his rest rest in that reality that the problem of God's anger toward his enemies is dealt with. Now, I said this once before, so forgive me. I'm just like every other preacher. What do we do in the dark days on the temporal level? First John is, is the great answer, I think, because First John says, and we sang about it this morning, abide in Christ. Abide in Christ. Abide in Christ. In Christ. First and foremost, the reality of your sin has been dealt with once for all time, as Nahum spoke of. And so you are secure and you are no longer an enemy of God. You are a friend of God, you are part of His family. The dark days are going to come and go. But that's not the end game. That's not what really matters. What really matters is the anger of God toward his enemies has been satisfied. The earthly enemies, <laughs> we get it in Isaiah 42 and 43. He's going to shut the mouths of kings like that. He's going to breathe and empires are evaporated. He's going to blink and the universe is torn from atom to atom. But relishing the reality that we abide in Christ who took us from being enemies to friends of God because he took upon himself our judgment, that lasts forever. 
And that's what Nam is talking about. He is talking about the destruction of Assyria. Don't misunderstand me. It's not just allegory. But he's talking about taking care of an infinitely larger problem. The problem of how man can have relationship with God. I hope that I've been clear. If I haven't, come see me after, but let me pray. Father, your word is life. It is true in every conceivable word. Nam has painted a picture of how it is that adversaries can be dashed for all time. Not just human adversaries. We're too shallow in our thinking. The reality is, is that Christ has taken us from being your enemies and made us your friends and all praise belongs to him. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.